it's got to have been at least 15 years um, since the first time that I read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, which was released incidentally on All Saints Day in 1997. I've since read it several more times. It's kind of gotten in my bones. And it has shaped more than anything my reading of the Sermon on the Mount that is recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and my understanding of Jesus' offering to us all, by and through him, the eternal kind of life, not at some point in the future, but now, now in the kingdom of the heavens. At the very beginning of the book, Willard quotes Malcolm Muggeridge from his book, Jesus, the Man Who Lives. Jesus' good news then was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, though, in a mysterious way, Jesus was the kingdom. And so Jesus' good news, if, he, if that is true, then Jesus' good news about the availability of the kingdom to everyone is good news only if we share his view of the world we live in. And to his eyes, this is a world in which every part is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control, though he obviously, for his own good reasons, permits some of it to be other than it ought to be for a while. And we've all experienced that. It's a world that, despite its obvious problems, is inconceivably beautiful and good simply because God is always in it. Nowhere is this idea more concisely communicated, though mostly obscured to modern and postmodern eyes, than in a phrase used in Matthew's gospel to talk about the kingdom. Now, you've most of you heard me talk about this before, especially in year A of the lectionary cycle when we're reading from the book of Matthew. But I think it's important for us to keep this front of mind when we're talking about the kingdom of the heavens because it, it's, it's not an abstraction. It's present. It's imminent. It has to do with, with a difference in terminology that might seem insignificant at first, but I believe, in fact, reaches deeply into the heart of Jesus' message, both about the world we live in and the imminence or nearness of his kingdom. And sorry, the air conditioner is on right now. We do not have a sound system today. It calved just before the service started, so um, I'm just going to have to project The phrase, kingdom of the heavens, plural, occurs 32 times in the book of Matthew and nowhere else in the New Testament. English translations don't really know what to do with it because our concept of heaven is singular and somewhere out there. So it's almost always translated as kingdom of heaven. But this wasn't the case for those Matthew was writing to, the Jewish people. Their, their concept of heaven was different than ours. 
there was a third heaven that was out there, beyond space, God's dwelling place. It's the heaven that St. Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, when he said, I knew a man who 14 years ago ascended into the third heaven, though I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. Then there's the second heaven, which is space, the sun, moon, and the stars, which the Bible calls the firmament. And then there's the first heaven, from the top of the sky to the soles of your feet, right here. And it's God's immediate and pervasive presence accessible right here that's precisely what the phrase, the heavens, conveys. This is why in the Gospels, by far, the one message Jesus consistently preached was repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is, do you know, do you know it? At hand. As he says in Matthew 4, 17, it's right here. Now, immediately preceding today's gospel, Jesus had been in the Galilee region proclaiming exactly that message of the at-handness of the kingdom and demonstrating it by meeting the immediate and desperate needs of the people around him. Matthew says that because of this, sick people were coming to be healed from as far away as Syria, and whatever their illness or pain, if they were possessed by demons or were mentally ill or paralyzed or epileptic, he healed them all. Enormous crowds had begun following him wherever he went. And having met their immediate needs, he wanted to teach them. So he moved to a higher spot where they could see and hear him clearly. And it's important to know that he doesn't move up on that hill to give some kind of esoteric discourse of transcendent irrelevance to the crying need of those pressing around him. Rather, amid a mass of raw humanity and with them hanging on every single word. Jesus teaches everyone within earshot about the available, availability and immediacy of the kingdom of the heavens to everyone. And I can't help but agree with Dallas Willard and the producers of The Chosen that Jesus must have used show and tell to clarify the extent of the at-handness of his kingdom. Because right there, standing and sitting in front of him, were the very ones who had just received from the heavens through him. The context makes this clear, and Jesus almost always teaches from his immediate context. He could just smile and point to a person in the huge crowd who was now blessed because the kingdom of the heavens had just literally reached out and touched them with his own hands. And so he began, blessed. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient. Those without any regard for religion. Blessed are they when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. 
or more commonly, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. They're blessed because the kingdom of God through Jesus is available to them in the midst of their spiritual poverty. The words poor in spirit don't really convey today the sense of spiritual destitution they originally did. In fact, we've made it into some kind of weird, kind of admirable condition to be poor in spirit. No doubt Jesus had dozens of examples from this kind of spiritual poverty in the crowd around him. This would in fact describe most of the 12 disciples before and occasionally after they met him. So standing around Jesus as he speaks are people with absolutely no personal spiritual qualifications. There's no hint that the breath of God moves through their lives. They don't know their Bible. Nor can they make any sense out of religion. They'd be the last to say that they have any claim on God. And the pages of the Gospels are cluttered with them. And you and I encounter them every day. And yet, the rule of the heavens comes into their lives through being with Jesus. And then they too are blessed. Healed of body or mind or spirit. It's important that we understand that Jesus didn't say here, blessed are the poor in spirit because they are poor in spirit. It makes people worthy of the kingdom. And we miss a much more profound meaning of this teaching about the availability of the kingdom by replacing spiritual impoverishment, which is in no way good with some supposedly laudable state of mind or attitude that somehow qualifies us for his kingdom. Those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they're in a commendable condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their deplorable condition, the kingdom of the heavens has moved redemptively upon them simply by meeting Jesus. Beatitudes aren't how-to teachings on being blessed. They're not instructions to do anything. They don't point to conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for humans. Grammatically, they aren't imperatives, not something we're supposed to do. No one's actually being told that they're better off for being poor or mourning or, or being persecuted or that the conditions Jesus lists are pathways to well-being. They're explanations and illustrations drawn from Jesus' immediate context of the present availability of the kingdom to everyone through a personal relationship with Jesus, because in some mysterious way, Jesus is the kingdom. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God truly is available. In life, circumstances that are beyond all human hope. 
It can't possibly be good news if they're read as a set of how-tos for achieving blessing. That would only be a new and onerous kind of legalism. They wouldn't serve to throw open the door of the kingdom. They'd impose a new way of closing the door. And some pretty satisfying new tools for self-engineering of righteousness. So, what does Jesus say to us in the Beatitudes, and how are we supposed to live in response to them? Firstly, they serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message, the present available of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through Jesus himself. They do this simply by taking those who, from a human point of view, are regarded as hopeless, beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest in exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch in abundance from the heavens. This fact of God's care and provision reveals that no human condition excludes blessedness and that God may come to any person with his care and deliverance. God helps those who cannot or simply do not help themselves to refute Ben Franklin's aphorism. By the way, somewhere north of half of American Christians believe God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not. Religious system of Jesus' day left the multitudes out, but he welcomed them all into his kingdom. Anyone could come, and they still can. That, that is the beauty of the Beatitudes. We've already considered the spiritually bankrupt or deprived. What about those who mourn? Luke refers to, refers to them in his gospel as those who weep. Men or women whose mates have deserted or betrayed them, for example, or a parent in gut-wrenching grief and depression over the death of a little daughter, people who've lost their careers or, or businesses or life savings because of an economic downturn or a scam or identity theft. There are so many ways to bring us grief. But as they see the kingdom of Jesus enter it and learn to live in it, they find comfort and their weeping can turn to joy. Then there are the meek, the shy, the intimidated, the mild, the unassertive, those with little earthly power. In fact, if something goes wrong around them, they automatically feel like they must have something, it must have something to do with them. But as the kingdom of, of the heavens enfolds them, the whole earth is their father's and theirs as they need it. The Lord is their shepherd. They shall not want. Then there are those who, who burn with desire for things to be made right, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It may be that the wrong is in themselves. They've failed so badly that they cringe before their own sin and inwardly scream to be made pure, or maybe that they've been severely wronged, suffered some genuine, terrible injustice, and they're consumed with longing to see the injury put right. 
Yet the kingdom of the heavens has an alchemy that can transform even the past and make the terrible, irretrievable losses that human beings experience seem insignificant in the greatness of God. He restores their soul and fills us. He restores our soul and fills us with the goodness of rightness. The merciful are here too. The cynical say, woe to the merciful, for they shall be taken advantage of. And outside of heaven's rule, that's true. The merciful are always despised by those who know how to get stuff done. Yet outside the human order, in the excess of the goodness of the, of the heavens, they themselves find a profusion of mercy to meet their needs. Then there are those who are pure in heart, the ones for whom nothing is quite good enough, not even themselves. They are the unredeemed perfectionists. And we all know who they are. They're kind of a pain to everyone, but most probably themselves most. They find errors in your doctrine, your practice, and probably your heart and attitude. They're the ones who wanted Jesus to wash his hands even though they weren't dirty and called him a glutton and a drunkard. And they may be even harder on themselves. They can tell you what's wrong with everything and they're miserable. And yet, the kingdom is open even to them. And there at last they'll find something that satisfies their pure heart. They will see God, and when they do, they'll find what they've been looking for, someone who's truly good enough. Peacemakers are here, too. They make the list because outside the kingdom, they're called everything but a child of God, because they're always in the middle. Ask a policeman who's been called in to handle a domestic dispute. There aren't many situations that are more dangerous. Neither side trusts you because they know that if you're looking at both sides, you can't possibly be on their side. But under God's rule, there's recognition that in bringing good to people who are in the wrong, as both sides usually are in some sense, you show a divine family resemblance because God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And the peacemaker deals precisely with the ungrateful and the wicked as anyone who has tried it knows. Then there are those who are attacked because of their unyielding stand for what's right, those persecuted for righteousness' sake. These often not only suffer momentary harassment, but see their lives ruined or are killed simply for refusing to be compliant or complicit with what's wrong in the world. Yet these two, can be possessed by the kingdom of the heavens. And when they are, that's enough to allow them to enjoy a blessed life. They experience an unshakable security in which they cannot ultimately be harmed. Finally, there are those insulted, persecuted, and lied about because they've gone off their rocker by taking up with Jesus and submitting to his reign. There's, that's certainly how his disciples were viewed at the time and how millions of lowercase o orthodox Christians in our own culture and even by, by some in the church 
so-called, are increasingly and publicly seen today. Yet, Jesus says, take joy when this happens from the knowledge that even now you have a great and imperishable reward in the heavens. You stand as saints before God, the Father, and his eternal family whose companionship and love and resources are now and forever yours in abundance. Even those who are moral disasters will be received by God as they come to rely on Jesus, count on him, and make him their companion in his kingdom. And I believe this is what Jesus meant in the Beatitudes is, is simply this. The blessedness, the, the true flourishing of the kingdom of the heavens is readily and immediately available to everyone. Anyone can be counted amongst the saints. The good news is you don't have to wait till you're dead. Jesus offers to everyone the, the, the right now flourishing of this present at hand kingdom, regardless of circumstances. Everyone. I believe that's the heart of Jesus' message in the Beatitudes, and it can be attained only in transforming personal relationship with Him. Because, as Malcolm Mudridge wrote, Jesus is the King. Is somebody assigned to get? Bring the kids up. That now would be the time. Now, all of this, I think, is especially important for us to hear today as we will, in just a few moments, baptize little Adrian Holleran and Calvin Simmons. We will welcome them into a community that has only one thing, just one thing, to offer them. Jesus and the flourishing that comes from the kingdom of the heaven. And as many of us gathered yesterday at the place that I believe will be Redeemer's permanent home, to begin to imagine ourselves in that place, we have only one thing to offer our neighbors there. Jesus and the flourishing that comes from the kingdom of the heavens. That's all. Nothing more. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.